0: Are you afraid? Love who's right. Question I must ask.
1: Can we be wrong together? Can we be wrong in love? Can we be wrong together? Can we be wrong, love? Can we be wrong together?
2: Can we be wrong together? Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Wrong Together by Benjamin Marshall out of Columbus, Ohio. Benjamin is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a brand new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal.
3: Hi, everyone. Okay, guys, it has been almost 50 years since a boy named Brad Bellino strolled the streets of his neighborhood in Boardman, Ohio, playing baseball in the local sandlots and riding bikes with his best buddy, and almost 50 years since someone ended that childhood. He still remembered, have no doubt about that, his murder left an indelible mark on the people who knew him. Tonight is his story. Before we get started, I need to extend full credit for most of the research in this story to the Philosophy of Crime website and a very thorough investigation done just last year by Carolyn Burradino. We'll include a link to that page on our episode notes so you can read the entire thing. Now, Boardman, Ohio is one of the towns that once made up the steel belt that ran between Cleveland and Pittsburgh, a chain of communities that ranged from urban enclaves to rural stretches of middle America. In 1972, Boardman was booming, but still had lots of room to grow, which is kind of where Brad was in his life. Brad Bellino was 12 years old, weeks away from finishing sixth grade at Boardman Center Middle School, with so much to look forward to. Brad lived on McClurg Road with his parents, Elisa and Joe Bellino. He was the youngest of four siblings, but the Bellinos were also fostering two children. In addition to juggling the six schedules of youngsters, Elisa and Joe Bellino both worked. She was a buyer for Lane Bryant. He worked at a Youngstown steel company. But young Brad sort of had a second family as well, because his parents worked during the school year. Brad often rode the bus home with his best buddy, Don Templeman, and had dinner at his house. The Templemans lived in Applewood Acres. That was an upper middle class development, and they always set an extra seat at the table for Brad. Brad and Don were inseparable in the summer, too. Riding bikes and playing baseball together, Don's dad coached the baseball team. Don was the pitcher, Brad was the catcher. And year-round, they took turns at each other's homes on the weekends. On Friday nights, Don would sleep at the Bolinos. There was a rock and gem shop nearby, and they often strolled over to look at the geodes. Sometimes they'd walk to the drive-in nearby and catch a movie. Sometimes Mr. Bellina would take the boys for a drive in his vintage MGTC convertible. On Saturdays, the boys slept at the Templeman's, and Brad would go with the family to church on Sundays. When holidays closed schools, that meant more time to spend together, and that's the way it was for Easter break in 1972. The Thursday of that long weekend, the boys went to hang out at a brand new mall that opened in town before heading over to the Templemans, where Brad had permission to spend the night. On Friday, the boys roamed around town some more. Brad was supposed to return to his own house by 4 p.m. that afternoon, but he called his dad and got the okay to stay for dinner with a promise that he'd be back home by 9 p.m. There were conflicting reports of what happened next, as Burradino learned in her reporting last year. Don Templeman, he's now a successful CEO in Georgia, told her he remembered that Brad was going to spend a second night that Friday. But his dad called and told him he should come home. So after a dinner of chicken and pineapple... Brad set out at 7.30 p.m. to begin the walk home. Now, normally, he would have gotten a ride, but Mrs. Templeman was at the grocery store. Mr. Templeman was in bed with the flu. Mrs. Bellino was at work, and Mr. Bellino had gone out for the night. So Brad set out on foot, dressed in his jeans, a blue ski jacket, and a t-shirt that said, The Devil Made Me Do It. Don recalled that a couple of hours later, Brad's brother called to find out where Brad was. When the Templemans realized he hadn't made it home, they hopped in the car and went to look for him. Following the route, he would have taken home. There was no sign of him, Don said. But the coroner's report included an interview with Joe Bellina, who said he had gone out for the evening that Friday night, and when he got home, he went to bed around 2 a.m., assuming Brad was asleep in his own bed. Elisa Bellino returned home that night from her job in Cleveland, but assumed Brad had spent the night at Don's. And so it wasn't until noon the next day that the family even realized Brad was missing. Whatever the circumstances, Brad had fallen through the cracks. It wasn't until 3.20 p.m. Saturday afternoon that police were called and Brad was reported missing. Police, as well as Brad's family and friends, spent the rest of that holiday weekend searching for him. But Easter came and went with no clue as to what had happened to the boy, only a growing fear that it wasn't going to end well. At 8 a.m. that Tuesday, five days after Brad vanished, A sanitation worker went to empty a dumpster behind the Isley's Dairy Store in the Boardman Plaza that was about two miles from the Templeman house. He made a terrible discovery. It was Brad. He was in the dumpster, covered with cardboard boxes and waste from the store. His pants had been pulled below his hips. A belt was tightly fastened around his neck. Police called one of their own to identify the body. Tone Doppelito was a Youngstown officer and Brad's first cousin. He had helped search for Brad on Easter Sunday, a search that had included the Boardman Plaza. After confirming Brad's identity, it was left to him to tell his aunt and uncle that their youngest son would not be coming home. Don learned his best friend's fate when a teacher came into the classroom that afternoon and announced Brad had been found dead. Don said to this day he can't recall what happened over the next hour. He's not sure if he passed out or blacked out. An autopsy by the Mahoning County coroner would determine Brad was strangled to death after being sexually assaulted. It was also revealed... He had died around 9 p.m. on Saturday. That was more than 24 hours after leaving the Templeman house. To investigators, that suggested there was another crime scene somewhere else, since it was likely Brad had been held prisoner for a day. Don revealed that there was something unnerving that happened the day they spent together. While they were out exploring the town that Friday, the boys kept seeing a brown van. They even joked about it, how it kept showing up at different locations. After they saw it a fourth time, they got scared, enough to change their plans and head directly to the Templeman house. And that's what to this day I think happened, Don told a reporter. I think whoever was in that van waited until he was in a dark spot and took him. The investigation ran into some early problems. Some folks told police they saw Brad Saturday afternoon in multiple locations. He was playing basket on Matthews Road, he was roaming Southern Park Mall, he was standing outside the Dairy Queen. But police came to believe the holiday weekend, with schools being closed, had people confusing Saturday for Friday. Besides, Don said, Brad was an obedient son. Oh sure, he was a risk taker. Brad, with his older siblings and lively household, seemed somehow worldly to Don. Brad was the one to suggest out-of-the-box activities, and Don was usually the one following along They even accepted rides before, and he knew Brad had hitchhiked on his own before. But if Mr. Bellino told Brad to come home, then he was going home. Police aren't sure who owned the murder weapon, the belt around Brad's neck,
2: Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.
4: A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10 part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.
3: Don said he was shown the belt by police and asked if it belonged to Brad. He said it did. Brad's family couldn't confirm one way or the other. But other reports suggested Brad's pants still had a belt attached, meaning the belt would have come from the killer. That could make it a clue. Also, Don said that when police interviewed him at the station after Brad's death, they showed him a stick and said it had been placed in Brad's rectum. It was a traumatic revelation for the 11-year-old who had just lost his best friend. But two investigators interviewed by Berardino last year for that philosophy of crime story denied a stick had been found. Anyway, Brad's funeral was a standing room only affair filled with classmates, their parents, and teachers. And when it was over, life for the Bellinos and Templemans was never the same again. That June, the Templemans moved to Tennessee. Don said his parents felt there were too many painful memories to stay. His parents never got over feeling guilty that Brad attempted to walk home that night, though Brad often walked around the neighborhood and was even known to hitchhike. Don, meanwhile, spent the rest of his childhood looking over his shoulder. I was very much more cautious, he said. You thought everybody was out to get you. I became very paranoid. Brad's case grew cold though it was revisited from time to time. And in the early 2000s, Boardman detectives reached out to the now-grown Don Templeman to talk about the case again. Don's phone rang as he was on his way to Disney World with his wife and kids. He sent them to the pool while he stayed in the hotel room and relived that night for the next hour. Police tried sorting rumor from fact and had to sort through an old list of suspects that numbered in the dozens. They looked into a guy called Old Bob who lived near the corner of Matthews Road and Glen Ridge who exchanged beer and marijuana for sexual favors from young boys. There was a projectionist at the theater near Isley's who chased around neighborhood boys. And they talked to a guy at the pizza shop who had tried to trade pizza for sexual favors. Then there was a security guard at that gem and rock shop near Brad's house. The guy spent a lot of time talking to the boys who came to hang out at the shop, but he also had a criminal history and just this weird fascination with cops. It had a police uniform handmade for himself. It had everything but the official law enforcement patch. He even drove a car that matched the local police cruisers. Jack Nichols, one of those modern detectives who later became the police chief, said they narrowed down the old 1972 suspect list to seven persons of interest, and search warrants allowed them to collect DNA samples from each, something that wasn't available back when the crime had happened. They also exhumed Brad's body and opened up old evidence packages and obtained a DNA sample that was not Brad's. There were reports that semen had been collected from Brad's clothes. None of the seven persons of interest match the DNA that was presumed to belong to the killer, not even that security guard whom they had tracked to South Carolina. Nichols thinks it quite likely that the killer died shortly after the crime. He said sexual predators rarely stop on their own, and it's hard to imagine after all these years the DNA they have had on hand has never matched anything in the national CODIS database. But then again, DNA collection wasn't a regular thing for decades after Brad was killed. A predator could have still remained active for years without being added to that database. If you have something to share, please call the Boardman Police at 330-726-4144. Now, When Brad's case was reopened in 2007, his was one of three murders assigned to Nichols and his partner Bob Rupp. All three cases involved young boys who were found dead in Boardman between 1970 and 1975. The first of those three homicides happened in December of 1970. That was a couple of years before Brad was killed. 15-year-old Thomas Baird had been found on Lake Park Road in Boardman, and he died a few days later of a brain injury. While his killers have never been caught, detectives came to believe he had been jumped by a group of teenagers who beat him to death. The third of the three cases that Nichols and Rupp were assigned happened a couple of years after Brad was killed. We're going to explore that case on Wednesday's 10-Minute Mystery, so be sure to come back later this week and hear the rest of this story.
2: This is a part of the program where we invite an Ohio Mystery listener to be an armchair detective.
3: Well, joining us tonight is Mark Baker. Mark is originally from Boardman, Ohio, but he is talking to us from Prague, the capital of the Czech Republic in the heart of Europe. Hi, Mark.
4: Hey, hi, Paula.
3: Hey, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I want to—I want our listeners to know how a guy from Boardman uh, gets to Prague.
4: Oh, oh, well, okay. That's a long story, so that's going to take up the whole rest of the podcast. So we don't even have to talk about them. Here.
3: <laughs> well, well, we'll take the well, thumbnail version.
4: <laughs> yeah, the thumbnail version. Yeah, um, yeah. You're, I, I was born in Youngstown, grew up in Boardman, like you said. Uh, I went to school at Miami University in Oxford, so I stayed in Ohio for the first twenty-two years, and then uh, decided to get into journalism. Probably not unlike. Your decision, you know, back in the day, I went to school in New York, I went to Columbia University, and from there I got a job in Austria, in Vienna, and my first job was to cover communist Europe, Eastern Europe. And then uh, 1989 happened, post-communist transformation, all that stuff, and it just seemed so exciting, you know, I wanted to stay and sort of see how it all turned out and you know as when you take make a move any any move it could be anywhere overseas or in the states you know one thing leads to another leads to another leads to another and pretty soon you know a couple decades go by and you're still here so basically i'm still here
3: wow now you're a travel writer and if somebody that's wants right. to see your writings you've got a website
4: yeah yeah that's right thanks for showcasing that the website is dot markbakerprog.com. just my name, Prague.com, all one word. But if a person really wants to see the kind of work that I do, they could just go down to their local bookstore or Barnes and Noble, go to the travel section of the bookstore, the international travel section, and then look at the European travel guides, uh, particularly the ones to Central Europe, like Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic. Pick it up and leaf through it. Chances are, in the contributors or the author page, you're going to see my name there.
3: So. Oh, that, that's wonderful. Now, listen, you've got a personal connection to this uh, case because you were growing up in Boardman when this happened. Right. Were you the same age as Brad and Don?
4: Yes. As a matter of fact, we were all in the same school together. Um, now the way it worked in Boardman is there were two middle schools and there were like three or four elementary schools. We didn't go to the same elementary school, but we all lived on the same side of Market Street in Boardman, which meant we all went to the same middle school. So, um, that would have been fifth and sixth grade that I knew those guys. So, I mean, I wouldn't say we were close friends, but of course, when you're in fifth or sixth grade, all your classmates are really your friends. And, uh, I definitely remember the names and I can picture them, you know, both of their faces, you know, when I think about those, those days going back.
3: Oh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about Boardman at that time. Yeah, um, I was thinking so much about this,
4: like, why does this case still resonate all these years later? And I was thinking, the reason is, is because if you go back in time in the early 70s, you know, Boardman felt really new. You know, a lot of families, particularly young couples, newlyweds, were moving out of Youngstown and other parts of that area, and starting a new life in this new growing township. And, um, you know, it was a really very nice place. It's still a very nice place, but you know, back then it really felt like, you know, a, a totally new beginning. Like it was the the future. You know, back then, of course, Boardman wasn't perfect. I mean, you know, um, there was a lot of mob violence and and union violence in Youngstown, and some of that violence would spill over to Boardman. So, you know, I mean, it was there was a lot of stuff going on. But in Boardman, it really felt like a just a great place to raise a family. And then this. Murder of, uh, you know, a 12-year-old boy happens kind of out of the blue, and I think that really, the community really felt violated by this murder, and I think it was kind of like a foundational murder for this township, and I think that's the reason why the police go back to it every decade, dig up all the old files and what, what they can do, because they really want to solve this case.
3: Yeah, I definitely got the impression this was more than just an end of innocence for the Bolinos and the Templemans, but for the town
4: for the in town. And its a yeah. entirety. Oh, absolutely.
3: Tell me what you remember about learning about this case.
4: Right. Um I'm trying you know, I was trying as we were thinking about this thing, I was trying to think what it was my first memory, and I think it was the front page of the Youngstown Vindicator would have been that Tuesday night edition or the Wednesday edition, so the day of the finding of the body or the day after. I'm not really sure which day it was, but of course, it was front-page news, and we'd all known over the weekend that Brad was missing, but of course, there was a lot of hope that he would just be found, you know, maybe just wandered off or ran away or something like that, um, but, you know, that really sealed the deal. You know, we knew then it was just a terrible crime that was committed right in our own backyards, basically
3: for Don he said it really kind of ruined the rest of his childhood he spent the rest of his childhood being paranoid looking over his shoulder did it have that kind of impact on you at all not I don't think
4: as strongly like I said I was you know I knew Brad I knew Don but we weren't really close friends so I I didn't have that Emotional reaction that he would of losing a close friend i don't even remember that moment where the school told us about it you know maybe i wasn't in school that day or maybe I just erased it from my memory banks, but i don't even have that, but I do remember you know there was a feeling of danger going through the community after that I mean you know if Brad in fact did hitchhike, well that was certainly nothing that we were going to ever try you know I mean that was just uh, you know that was uh, you know, scared straight kind of thing, you know, that that that's, you know, that's just something that you just would never do. So, I mean, there was that kind of reaction.
3: Now, do you have any theories on this case? Because obviously they had at one point, dozens of suspects and then the modern day cold case detectives narrowed it down to seven and then ruled all seven of those out. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on this?
4: Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. So, uh, you know, we don't have to spend a lot of time on all the thoughts, but I really like going through this. My first thought is, like, what actually happened to Brad? And I was thinking about this. Okay, so it was Friday evening around 7 or 7.30. That's Does that correspond to your information more or less? Exactly. Yes, yeah. it does. Okay um on on that date in 1972 the sun set at 7:40 i was looking at google or 7:41 or something like that so he set out basically at sundown on that walk and uh I-
3: I figured as soon as I saw the date, I thought it's dark that time of year.
4: It was just getting; dark. it was dusk when he left. If that's the time, you know, it was dusk, and by the time he was ten or twenty minutes into that walk, he was already walking in darkness. And um, you know, if you read the reports on the, in the newspapers or online, or if you, um, you know, if you hear this podcast from some other place in Ohio or someplace around the world, you know, you might have a, you might conjure up an idea of Borman. as a really nice residential area, and it is. But um, that walk that Brad would have done to go home was not really a pleasant walk at all. I mean, you know, Don lived in a really nice area, kind of a white-collar suburb, um, a white-collar development. But Brad lived way out in the country, you know, four miles. And once you go south of U.S. Route 224, which is the main east-west street that goes through Boardman, um, back then it was fields, pastures, highways, highways. You know now it's a little bit more built up but it's still a little bit remote so he would have been walking and was about four miles not two or three miles you know but based on google what google tells me today about that distance so for at least two or two or two and a half of those miles it would have been walking down a long lonely highway um and those that long lonely highway meaning you know some cars would go by but the businesses were set back off the road so there wouldn't be a lot of witnesses to see if anything happened on the road. Um, Certainly cars at that time in the evening going dark aren't going to stop. If they see something on the street, they're just going to keep on going by unless it looks really dicey, but, you know, probably not. So it was easy. You know, I hate to say it, but I think it was easy for somebody to see this little kid walking on the side of a highway and get him into your vehicle in some way or another. So I think really think that he was abducted on the walk home. And basically that was it. You know, whatever happened to him happened between the time and when his body was found or when the coroner ruled him, thought the death would have happened. You know, I don't think that that the sightings the next day, he probably talked a bit about that, where he, you know, there's some witnesses that saw him at various places. I don't think that those are credible sightings at all. I really don't.
3: Yeah, clearly I think those people were confused about what the day it was. And when I heard about how far of a distance it was between the Templemans and the Bolinos, I thought, that is not down the block. That is not a short amount. And I didn't know the topography of it, but hearing you talk, I'm wondering if he set out— knowing that he intended to hitchhike. If he was used to hitchhiking, maybe that was his intentional. Oh, long.
4: I think so. You know, you get out of Appwood Acres where Don's family lived and you're right on 224, which is, you know, still a busy, very busy road now, much busier even now than it was back then. And then um, you would walk and then you would go south along South Avenue, which is State Route 164, or you could go the other direction and go south along uh, Ohio Route 7, which is Market Street, which is another big Ohio State Route going south. And then you'd go out by... Uh, two miles south and then you'd get into what brad would consider to be his neighborhood and i'm sure you know if he did it before he'd just think well i'll just get out on the highway stick out my thumb you know i'll be home in 20 minutes no big deal
3: now there's one really odd uh conflicting report. I can't wrap my head around. Okay. When the philosophy of crime reporter last year interviewed Don Templeman, he said that his family was called that evening by Brad's brother. right? And when they found out that Brad hadn't made it home, they went out and immediately began looking for yeah,
4: him. Yeah, I, I also thought about that. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, go ahead.
3: I, you know, I. I mean, Don was young. He was even younger than Brad by a few months. I mean, he was 11. Brad was 12. And I know from my own experience that I have completely botched some of my memories of my childhood. Because I will tell them and my family will laugh and say it never happened like that. And I'm wondering if maybe Don just very innocently remembers that night in a different way. Because I can't imagine how those two stories could be so different. I mean, his family says, we went home, went to sleep, didn't know he wasn't in his room, didn't call, you know, know he was no. missing till the next afternoon. And Don's story that my family was out looking for him that night, right. that those two things cannot be I, both true.
4: I, I, You know, if Don's family talked to Brad's family and said, have you seen Brad or Brad's family called Don's family and said, he didn't come home, is he still with you guys? And we all went out well then the police would have been brought in much sooner if that's all true i think
3: yeah i think so too you know, and
4: i think it could be some something like a misremembering of the facts or maybe he's confusing friday night with saturday night i, I really don't know you know there is a possibility that they all went out on saturday night to look for brad
1: science science science.
2: science 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 hello podcast fans want to get weird with us myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual, all to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts, the Mad Scientist Podcast. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show.
3: Right. And then there was the... uh, That's a very good point. I mean, they could be... Don could be misremembering that night as well. But there also um, was that conflicting report where Don had remembered being shown a stick And cold case detectives today saying there's no record of there having been a stay.
4: Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was just terrible. (laughs) Poor Don the next day with the police department or when they found Brad's body in the police department. I mean, that whole event must have been so traumatic that give him a lot of credit for misremembering some facts. You know, I mean, everything must have been a blur at that stage.
3: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Another
4: fact that I am confused about, and I would really like to see the case files someday. Is the question of the belt or the belts? Because I think that they can take the direction they could took, take this investigation in two different directions. There's a question whether the belt that Brad was killed with was his own belt, or there's a question of whether there were two belts that Brad was actually wearing his belt and that the belt found around his neck was somebody else's belt, even though it was also the size that would fit a young boy. So, um, you know, I think that if it was Brad's own belt that that strangled him, then it lends itself to a killing of opportunity, if you will. And if there were two belts, then it definitely lends itself to premeditation. Somebody had to get a second belt and and do this.
3: Probably for those very reasons, the police really wanted to know, you know, whether that was his belt or not. Yeah. And it sounds like they just could not confirm it. I was thinking, you know, the Bolinos had six kids, and, you know, they probably had a lot of little belts laying around. And, yeah, And uh, they yeah. just didn't recognize whether it was theirs or not. I mean, how different can a belt be? Um,
4: right. But, and then they said that they traced the belt to J.C. Penney's, which... There is a JCPenney's or there was one, you know, until very recently. I think the JCPenney's is closing now because of the coronavirus pandemic in that mall. But for all those years, there was a big JCPenney store in that mall that very close to where Brad's body was found. So, I mean, you know, it would have been very easy to get a belt, a JCPenney belt, you know, right there on the site practically.
3: And if the belt belonged to the killer, maybe that would be an indication that he was local if he was shopping at that J.C. JCPenney.
4: Very possibly. Or, or, again, an opportunistic shopper. I mean, there's just a, a few things that we don't know and a few things, like you pointed out, of details that are kind of contradictory. It leaves us in a bad situation to make real definitive judgment about what happened.
3: The good news is apparently they have DNA evidence that they believe belongs to the killer, and it sounds like this case, even almost 50 years later, could totally be solvable.
4: Yeah, I know. That is so amazing. They've they've had DNA for a while. I mean, they went to the, you know, Paula, they went to the stage where they ex- exhumed Brad's body to get the DNA. So when I said that they're really serious about solving this case, I mean, that's a significant step to take to get the DNA. And hopefully... They're going to be able to put this to good use through familial DNA sites or G- DNA sites rather that, uh, that use the uh, genetic composition to construct what a, the killer might have looked like or what characteristics he might have had. So I think that would just be fantastic if, if they could solve this.
3: James Renner is an investigative reporter and a true crime author who started a nonprofit called the Porchlight Project, and they raise funds to do this familial DNA testing, and just this summer, their uh, efforts— Worked. I mean, they were successful in identifying the killer of a 1996 cold case. Yeah. And so the fact that this story is on his website makes me happy that it's in their in their radar. Yeah. And makes oh. me think that maybe this is going to be a future project for them.
4: I hope. Oh, I would. That would be wonderful. Going through looking at the at the various sources online for this thing. You no, know, I realized that locally this murder is pretty well known and gets you know pulled up every. 10 years or eight years or whatever, when the police go back into the files and maybe a little bit of statewide knowledge of the case, especially in the Northeast of Ohio, but the rest of the state, not so much, but it's really nowhere on the radar screen at all, not in the United States or anywhere else. It's very difficult to find information on this. So any exposure that Porchlight or your podcast can give this murder is just, you know, would potentially be so useful and helpful.
3: Yeah, until these things get solved, it breaks my heart that any of them would be forgotten because really more than half the battle is keeping it in the public eye so people apply that pressure to get this solved and don't forget and so we're going to cross our fingers and, and hope. Now, we've got a 10-minute mystery coming up on Wednesday that is kind of a continuation of this story in that another boy is going to be killed a couple of years after mm-hmm. Brad. And I don't want to go into details now because we're going to do the give it the full treatment on Wednesday. But can you speak a little bit to just... How you felt when that second murder happened. I mean, you were still in town. Um, what did that second murder, I should say third murder, because we already explained the, the boy that was beaten to death a couple right. of years before. But what did this trio of murders mean to the town, even it, beyond Brad's own death?
4: You know, I. Um, it's, it's interesting because I don't remember David's murder as well as I remember Brad's. I don't know if it's because I knew Brad personally or I was in or out of the loop when David's murder was announced. But I do know that the three murders and that spate of murders really spooked people at that time. Like, is there a, a child killer in our midst? Was there somebody who is, even though the, the MOs of the different crimes were different and it's probably... possibly, probably, that they are not the same codes, but, you know, who knows. But uh, it did give people a sense that for kids, it's not very safe.
3: Yeah, that must have been a real end of innocence for everybody, for for a community that, like you said, you know, they were on the you know, border of where all the mobster activity was going on, but yet still rural enough, still Norman Rockwellian enough. Oh, yeah, it's a Families great place. felt safe. So Yeah,
4: and, you know, it, it, despite all these murders, I don't want to leave your listeners with this feeling that, that somehow the place is reeling or something like that. I mean, people took it in stride, and, uh, you know, I grew up and went through the whole 70s, graduated from Bourbon High School in 1978. It was still a great place to live. You know, we still ran around and did all these things. It's just something was taken away from us that was the feeling something was just in the back of the mind that something could go wrong and that was you know that was the difference
3: mark thank you so much it was wonderful talking to you
4: yeah yeah you too hang in there thank you
3: okay you too bye bye.
2: that's it for tonight listeners for photos news clippings and more on this and every episode hop on over to our website ohiomysteries.com
3: And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Benjamin Marshall is a folk pop singer-songwriter from Columbus, and he's been working on some new music. On July 10, he just uh, got out his new single, Lonely With You. In the meantime, we're featuring a great song from his previous discography called Wrong Together. Benjamin explained the inspiration for the song saying, being wrong is never fun, but it can be liberating, especially when you realize everyone's been there. He said, it happens, life happens, and love still happens. Let's just admit it. Anyway, wrong together is a melodic chamber poppy contribution to being wrong. You can find Benjamin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And check out his website, www benjaminmarshallmusic.com
2: well let's have another listen to Wrong Together by Benjamin Marshall and we'll see you back here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries
0: and how can we know what is right we fight to be blind our hands on our eyes and how can we speak from our hearts the blood in those veins Flowing with lies And are you
1: afraid To be you And are you afraid
0: Of who's right The question I must ask Can we be wrong Together, can we be wrong in love? How can we know who is right when our ears fall asleep to the sound of our air? How can we know of who's wrong without planting the seed? Nor a meal to share. Are you afraid
1: to be you?
0: Are you afraid of who's right? Question I must ask.
1: Can we be wrong? together can we be wrong in love can we be wrong together can we be wrong in love can we be wrong together can we be wrong in love can we be together can we be reborn into Are you afraid
0: of who's right? And how can we know what is next? We take our own step, the fear of our path. And how can we hope to be one? Do we offer our life to the least and the last? And are you afraid
1: to be us?
4: The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War. But half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War america's first asian counterinsurgency conflict the heroes the villains we'll discuss president mckinley admiral dewey the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk theodore roosevelt's presidency check out our show ohio versus the world on the evergreen podcast network for our new episode about america's most forgotten war now back to the show